Hi, I'm Jillian Swinford. And I'm Haley Brolison. And this is Mother Nature Will Kill You. A podcast about the most horrific tragedies and the most triumphant survival stories that the wilderness can provide. So grab your backpack and maybe a bottle of wine and let's go on a wild ride into the unknown. Walking down this road I go, but I am going alone, running far, far from home, till I am skin and bone. Everybody. Welcome Good back. Evening. Welcome back. Welcome back to the shit show. <laughs> We're so tired. <laughs> <laughs> I had such a rough day that I am drinking a beer on a Thursday night, which is I was just about to say, hey, look at you. Remember when we started this and we're like, oh, what drink are you drinking? Mm-hmm. And that lasted all about a good 12 episodes. Yeah, that was real cute. <laughs> but uh yeah, we don't do that anymore because no. <laughs> we're just perpetually exhausted. <laughs> yeah, way too tired. Um, how was your how was your week? Week and a half. It's been exhausting, but I just got back from a fishing tournament yesterday, so that was fun. Yeah, there was eighteen teams, and we placed six. And I probably averaged like one or two fishing trips a year, so me not being an angler placing six I think that was pretty good that's so is that just you or like your whole team it was me and my partner that I was fishing with and like our guide so like our quote-unquote team yeah and we were fishing for redfish and snook and we were fishing in the everglades and so it was like your largest snook and your largest redfish combined in total centimeters was like your score nice so and apparently after Hurricane Ian came through, all the redfish left and they just yeah. haven't been back yet. So like the ones that are around are just small. But They're it was all fun. up it was here. Good. <laughs> I'm sure they are. Yeah. <laughs> but it was fun. It was good. Um, it's the company that was throwing it. They are the construction company that is helping build our new aquarium. Okay. And so we had two teams on there just to represent our gotcha. organization. The other team won fourth place okay and the two girls that were on that team they fly fish all the time this was a spinning reel competition Mm -hmm. but like they fly fish all the time and they date fishing guides Mm -hmm. so i was wholeheartedly expecting them to beat us i was not hurt in the slightest (laughs) (laughs) but like you did pretty good then yeah i was like this makes sense it's i get it like you guys know how to fish and and we were paired with our guide the night before so it wasn't like we got to pick who okay. our guide was either so okay yeah no it was really fun we did that uh yesterday and tuesday night was the dinner before that so that was up in the upper keys so like tuesday afternoon i drove up there and then i spent the night up there fished all day wednesday and then came back wednesday evening back here and then tried to work today but i was so tired i could not even keep my eyes open i tried to work from home and no not just... happening 
It was, I sent some emails and I made some phone calls and that was it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And last week we were doing our toys for tots promos. So like we do toys for tots. Um, well, I can't say every year cause we just started it last year, but, mm-hmm. um, we've been doing a toys for tots promo where like, if you bring a toy in, you get a tour of the lab. And so we were doing that in our upper keys locations and our lower keys location. And that was like all last week was just driving up and down the keys and giving tours to people. So that was fun. And then this weekend on Saturday, I have to go up to Key Largo and work the Key Largo boat parade at our nursery that's up there because we're doing another like toys for tots promo where it's like if you bring a toy to the nursery Mm -hmm. you can get like a a prime seating view of the Key Largo boat parade okay yeah yeah so I'm gonna be up in Key Largo on Saturday it just like never ends my friend texted me today (laughs) she's like hey how's your week going I was like I'm exhausted (laughs) I'm so tired all last week my boyfriend was in the northern part of Florida for his work and then, like, the beginning of this week, I was, like, in Key Largo. So, like, I didn't see him all last week. I I saw him for, like, a quick second on Monday night. And then, mm-hmm. like, Tuesday I left. And then I didn't get back until, like, you know, yesterday night. So it's just one of those things where we haven't, like, really seen each other for almost two weeks. And it's, like, when you're working so much and you're trying to put yep. in that time with your significant other. And then you're trying to, like, keep up with the holidays. And then mm-hmm. it's just, like, so It's much. a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh we just I, I, like as soon as we got back we were just like immediately like jumping in back into like I have not had time to catch my breath yeah hardly since we got back yeah from Big Bend how was that trip it was pretty freaking sweet clearly no one died so that's great no one di- <laughs> no one died we didn't really have any incidents either um we had like one hike that we went on that like first of all we went off trail on accident second of all whoops (laughs) well it's like two trails like one was at the top of this like pour off which is essentially like in the desert when you have all these plateaus there's like an area where all the streams kind of converge like all the Mm -hmm. water flows through and then it'll cascade off of the plateau there was no water there so we just kept going down it you know, if you're able-bodied enough, you could, you could get down it. But <laughs> how was getting back up it though? It was fine. It was oh, fine. So good. there was like a trail at the top and a trail at the bottom, and we just kind of connected the trails on accident. So, oh. you know, <laughs> just a little whoopsie doopsies. Mm-hmm. But um, once we got to the bottom of that one, though, I just started feeling really uneasy, and I don't know why. Probably because you do this podcast all the time and read all these horror stories and you're like, hey, this is a prime example of why you should always stay on a designated path. (laughs) Yeah, because we thought, you know, we just keep going because we saw like footprints and stuff and like the sandy sections like like going down the rocks. So we're like, oh, it's probably still the trail. It wasn't. What if you found two dead bodies at the end of that? You're like, let's follow these footprints. And it's like just dead bodies. You're like, oh, I see why <laughs> people don't do this. <laughs> well, you know, it is the third deadliest national park in the United States. Is it really? Because uh, it's so hot. What are the people... other two? I don't know. I no. just heard it was the third. And I was like, oh, we're going there, I guess. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> Sounds attractive. <laughs> third deadliest. Yeah, I'll go. So for those of you who don't know, because I didn't really know 
about it until I moved to Texas. It Big Bend is basically, if you look at the state of Texas, you look at the section that's to the far west, it has a little dip in it or a bend, if you will. The armpit. The, yes, pretty much that whole area is Big Bend National Park, Big Bend State Park, and then a couple of like wildlife management areas. And it's right on the border um, with Mexico. So it's right on the Rio Grande, um, which we got to go see, which is pretty cool. Did you guys Um, go into Mexico at all? We didn't because our passports aren't updated at the moment. Oh, that's a bummer. Yeah, because you can cross into, there's this town called Boquillas that you can cross into if you want to. But, you know, we just stood there and stared at it. Yeah, just waved. (laughs) Just up. Um, But it's this really unique park because it does not always feel like you're in texas when you're there oh okay a lot of it is the desert which is very like arizona new mexico southwest feeling and then there's these mountains that kind of just jut out of the ground in the middle of it and there's like it's an arid warm forest but it's you know like a mountain forest nonetheless yeah um and like bears and cougars and all kinds of stuff live up in there and that's where we camped and it was pretty freaking cold at night (laughs) we'll say that much like it got real warm during the day really cold at night so and there was one night that we had to sleep in the car because the wind was so loud in the tent that we couldn't get any sleep and the side of the tent kept smacking Corey in the face oh that's a bummer (laughs) uh the car was pretty comfy though we'll say that's good. good But, you guys, um, like, have it outfitted for, like, sleeping, probably? Yeah. No, we okay. did not. We just threw oh. our pads in there and just oh. bundled up and yep. laid That's down fair. the seats. You know, it was it was fine. Well, good deal. It sounds like a fun trip. It was a fun trip. And did you guys I, do your Junior Ranger book? No. <laughs> I saw it, it and I thought of you. Yeah, you should have done it. <laughs> Rory kind of wanted to do it. Or he, he mentioned about like he wanted to start collecting like all the passports and stuff. And I'm like, They're go, so go fun. for it, babe. It's like a really great way to go around and see the park too. Yeah. It's like, yeah, fine. Definitely. I don't know. Like the one in the Everglades, it was like an animal bingo. Like find a lizard, find a pelican. <laughs> like, you know, it was cute. I liked it. And then there was other activities. And because of that Junior Ranger book, when I was out fishing the other day, I was like, looking at a lot of wading birds because we were like in the everglades and i was like hey did you guys know that there used to be a lot of wading birds back like decades ago and in the junior ranger book if you saw one wading bird you times that by 10 and that's like how many wading birds would be like in that area and i was like look at all the wading birds that are around us there'd be like hundreds of wading birds right now like isn't that crazy <laughs> so many wading birds i just love wading birds though like that's like my jam i love birds <laughs> I mean, like herons and egrets and stuff are pretty, pretty cool. Yeah, pretty. We saw two roseate spoonbills when we were out yesterday. Yeah, really really neat. I like saw them from afar. It was like a pink dot, and I was like, "Yeah, we see them all the time around here." Fun fact: like all the time. I love them. During the winter, they migrate up here, I guess, and yeah, just be driving around the road, and you're like, "Well, there's a spoonbill," you know. (laughs) That's cool. Yeah, they're like a treat when I see them out here. When I was in Central Florida sandhill cranes were a common bird and yeah. those things are huge yeah like <laughs> well it's like isn't that what they said that like mothman was they thought yeah mothman yeah yeah was <laughs> sandhill crane. it's just a sandhill crane <laughs> yeah yeah we see spoonbills all the time 
that's, that's funny. No, we didn't do the the junior ranger thing. I was uh kind of sick because so I'm from allergic allergies to cedar trees. Oh, is that what you found out? No, I knew that. Oh. I knew that, but there's a lot of them up there. So did you bring like a bunch of allergy medicine? I mean, yeah, but at some point you can't. It's just you can't too just much. It. You yeah, know, so fair. so climbing up certain trails, I was like low key dying for Weezing. sure. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, <laughs> go on without me. Um, but yeah, it was really cool. And honestly, if it was closer to civilization, I think it could be as big as like Yosemite. Oh, really? You know, like it was so freaking beautiful. It's just so remote that yeah. I just don't think a lot of people, I mean, like at Corey's office, like nobody has ever been to Big Ben there. And most of them have lived in Texas their entire life. You know, when I was talking to the ranger in the Everglades, she said a similar thing about the Everglades because she was like, oh, where are you guys from? And we're like, oh, we're from the Lower Keys. And she was like, you would be surprised at like how many locals like don't come here. Yeah. I was like, really? Like it's right here, like on the mainland. Like if you're in Miami or like Florida City, like Homestead, like that's a great park to go to all the time. If you just Mm -hmm. like, I don't know, get out of the city for a bit and like camp for a weekend. I don't know, but the bugs are pretty bad, so I guess you couldn't really camp all the time. But. Yeah, yeah. But still, it's like, she was like, oh, yeah, no one comes here. And, like, there's a Key Biscayne National Park, too, in Big Cypress. Mm-hmm. I have not been to Key Biscayne National Park, and that's only because I think most of that is, like, scuba diving. Mm-hmm. And, like, I'm not going to do that. Um, But, I mean, maybe I will. I don't know. Maybe I'll snorkel. I'll just go to the station and see what's, like, on land. Mm-hmm. But, like, that's a lot to plan a, a dive trip you know it is so but i'd like to see big cypress that seems cool yeah i think i think a lot of people who stay stationary like in their same state for their whole life like don't do like the tourism in the state kind like so like because i was a military brat every time we'd go to a new state we would like be become like local tourists like we would go do all of the things like that was nearby us and i think i've just like carried that on well, I think it's fun now. to play tours sometime. Like even I don't know, even down here, the keys like in Key West specifically, they try to, I don't know, incentivize like the locals to play tours because it's like the first Sunday of every month. It's local Sunday. And like mm-hmm. any tourism attraction, like the Key West Lighthouse, like Hemingway House, like whatever, there's like a discount or it's free. Mm-hmm. So I mean, I think that's nice just to try to do some local stuff and yeah. But it's like for free or a discount. So yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. yeah. So it was, it was awesome. I highly recommend it if you ever get a chance. But it is like you would have to like fly into El Paso and then drive like three or four hours into the desert. <laughs> it's funny you mentioned it because like when I was driving back across the country, I thought about going and stopping at Big Bend. But one, I don't think it was very close to the route I was taking. And two, I just didn't know enough about it. Yeah. Safely be like, oh, yeah, I'll go there. You could um, hit up like uh, Big Bend, Guadalupe Mountains, Carlsbad Caverns, and White Sands kind of on that same stretch. That's kind okay. of the national parks that are near. near yeah. So I was Big trying Bend. to go to Carlsbad Caverns because my dad's cousin told me about it. 
And I was like, oh, Annie's gone there. I could try to hit this on my way back. And it, I remember that being farther away than I thought it was. So yeah. that's probably why I didn't do it. Yeah. They're all kind of like isolated down there <laughs> together, but it's still like, it's still like four or five hours to get from like Big Bend to Guadalupe Mountain yeah. uh, National Park. So, which is nuts. Yeah. <laughs> so, you, so, you know, it's just one of the more isolated ones. So, speaking of isolated, yes, let's get into this. We're going back to a place that I love and is near and dear to my heart, even though I've never been there because it's a really hard place to get to. I have a friend that's been there twice, I believe. Fuck them. Just fuck um, them. <laughs> so unless jealous. it's the other one. We'll have to talk about that when you reveal what we're talking about. Oh, you don't know? <laughs> you don't know what we're talking about? Well, I always get confused. Yeah. I know I know what we're talking about, but like in my brain, I always get confused of like which one is which. Uh huh. Okay. Well, one you can physically drive to if you really want to, and the other one you can't. And we're talking about the other one. We're talking about the land of Shackleton. We're talking about Antarctica. So is Antarctica the one with the field station? I mean, they both. They Antarctica both have field stations is the one on the bottom. Yeah, I'm South just trying Pole. to figure out which one my friend went to because she went. I think it was Antarctica. Let me go look it up real quick. Because now I mean, I'm if she went to um, because like Palmer, there's uh, oh, what's the McMurdo? Try to think of the other field stations that are there's a Scott Adamson, which is south the South Pole. Um, so they have like, I mean, the thing about Antarctica is it's not technically owned by anyone. Um, it is no man's land. Yeah, and so, but a lot of countries that have vested interests in the continent have field stations and big ones down there, including us. And our our main one is McMurdo, but we also, I think have the south pole as well um and we have been talking about like old school stories when it comes to antarctica like obviously we talked about shackleton we also talked about um douglas mawson earlier this year who was the guy who went um on a little trip with his two friends and lost those two friends in a crevasse and he had to come back all the way 300 miles i don't know if you remember that one or not i kind of do he lost uh all of the skin off of his legs oh was (laughs) i on that one or was that yeah you were (laughs) okay that was not a Corey episode i clearly like Mm -hmm. blacked that out because i didn't want to think about it probably because it's pretty gross (laughs) um so yeah my friend is in antarctica and she's at the mcmurdo station yeah okay so you're right. Oh, so the thing about the Arctic is a lot of it you can get to much easier than uh, Antarctica because the Arctic is connected to big modern countries like Canada, you know, Russia, Norway, Finland, U- the mm-hmm. U.S., Alaska, obviously, is part of the Arctic. So it makes it a little bit more accessible than the Antarctic, yet both are pretty dangerous when it comes to physical conditions and animal life and just Mm -hmm. generally being out there um but by far antarctica is more isolated because it's not connected to anything yeah um so we've talked about a lot of old school survival when it comes to antarctica a lot of like really brutal like hey let's go check this place out but you know we don't have radios 
or anything to contact, you know, the rest of the world. So they don't know what's going on with us and we're stranded out here, you know, good stuff like that. But um, today we're going to talk about something that happened a lot more recently. How recent? And I actually found out about this one on TikTok. Oh, really? Yeah. So I don't know if you follow, I think her handle is Geosaurus. I've Uh, heard of her before. She does the Spooky Lake month. It's Spooky Lake month. (laughs) Um, hello. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, hello. Welcome back. It's Spooky Lake month. Yeah, so if you've not, if you don't follow her, you fucking should because she's, she's like an artist who lives in the Great Lakes area and she, but she does in October these videos one per day talking about haunted hydrology as she puts it um and so it can vary from anything from lakes to rivers to oceans to you know any anything in that kind of world and she's covered aspects of Shackleton's story she's covered aspects of like the Franklin the lost Franklin expedition um she's even talked about the Edmund Fitzgerald She's um, talked about the, the Chesapeake Bay. Yeah, she does talk about Shout the out. Chesapeake Bay. Yeah. <laughs> so she kind of covers all kinds of interesting stuff. And so the, she kind of put me on to this story. And it involves like all of my favorite things. So Antarctica, obviously, being one. Death diving. and dismemberment being the two. Huh? Oh, I said death and dismemberment being the other. Yeah. So Antarctica uh, diving two cave exploration three caves so we got three big hitters right now and badass lady scientists four i do appreciate a badass lady scientist that's for sure so this has got it's like the total package you know yeah it's great and it's gonna be a good palate cleanser after (laughs) oh nice after the daughter party so yeah i still think about that from time to time like we're watching 1882 (laughs) oh yeah well it's alex's first time it's my second time and like it's given me real donner party vibes like when you really watch it when you watch it again after like us just talking about the donner party like dear god it's almost like they are just like donner party adjacent because people start dying they don't eat them no like you know they're like making their trek out west people are dying from like snake bites and just like you know other things and then they try to cross this raging river and then people drown in the river and it's just like <laughs> and you're like this is great <laughs> yeah i'm like this is giving me some donner party vibes like you know the leader of the pack is like kind of knows what he's doing kind of doesn't really have mm. great direction of and like handling the the crowd you know mm-hmm. so yeah yeah just... i i feel like most of the people who like settled the west like kind of knew what they were doing and kind of didn't. <laughs> yeah. I feel like that's like all of America. <laughs> I I just can't imagine being back then trying to settle the West. Like Yeah. I was thinking about that while we were out in Big Bend because it is such an expansive park. It's fucking huge. It takes like 2 hours to drive from one end to the other. And half of it, well no, not half of it. Most of it is like the Chihuahua the Chihuahua Desert and there's oh, just nothing. But, like, yeah. people lived there. Yeah. Like, could you imagine have... com- coming across that as, like, a European settler and being like, yes, let's cross this? Yeah. 
I'd be like, what the fuck? Like, let's go back to the East Coast. What are we doing out here? Yeah. Like, that's what one of the women in the show screams at her husband. She's like, where are you taking me? Where have you brought me? <laughs> yeah. I'm like, yeah, girl, same. What am I yeah. doing here? <laughs> I mean, just saying, if I was um, like Tamsin Donner, that's what I would be thinking the whole fucking time, you know? Yeah. <laughs> what are we doing? Just, we uh, lived yeah. in like freaking Springfield, Indiana or wherever. Like, that was yeah, like, nice. Fine. Yeah, that it was, was nice. Fine. What was wrong with it? Don't fix it if it's not broken. Whatever. Like... <laughs> so, Antarctica. Yeah, back to the cold <laughs> continent. The last unconquered continent. So the corners and the blank spaces on the map of the world have all but been filled in. And much of our goals of exploration point skyward away from this planet of ours. However, there are vast wildernesses that have been left for the most part unexplored, even as we make our way into 2022. Many of these vast wildernesses are temporal now, maybe only around in that way they are now for maybe just another decade maybe just a few years and some are eternal the remaining unexplored or partially explored areas on earth belong into three categories um the extreme poles the ocean and the numerous and many undiscovered cave systems that pocket the earth sinking deep into the earth's crust Today, we are going to talk about an explorer that was the first to explore all three at the same time um, in a remarkable and extremely lucky experience that will never be able to be achieved in this very temporally driven place again. You know, I think I did see this on TikTok too. Yeah. By the same Geosource. Yep. Yeah. Because yep. it's jogging my memory now. And when I watched this, I was like... All of this would freak me the fuck out. I would poop my pants. I would never go back. Like I'm pretty sure I sent this video to you and I was like, I'm going to do this. Yeah. And I was like, nope, that's a big nope for me. So let's just get into like what I'm talking about, because I I like to be real metaphorical on the top of the story. Just make you wonder. So today we're talking about Jill Heinerth, who is a professional cave diver and explorer and underwater filmmaker from Canada who has done work for PBS, National Geographic, and the BBC. So some pretty legit, you know, filmmaking is going on. Yeah. She is considered one of the most accomplished cave divers on the planet and regularly goes into highly dangerous caves to capture footage of some of the most amazing spaces that most people never get to see and will never see. Yeah, I I don't think I'll ever end up on Antarctica. No, that's why we have these people to film it. Yeah, but then, then again, I never thought I would end up in Alaska and I did go there. So I'm I'm doing it. I'm okay. going to go to Antarctica someday. I don't know how. I don't know in what capacity, but it's going to happen. Yeah, I was say my thing is like, what do you do when you get there? You just look at all the cool stuff. You go, like, there's cruises, actually, that go down there. Oh, really? Yeah. And you can, you go, like, kayaking, you go sightseeing, you go look at penguins, you go to, like, old field stations, like, you know, Scott or Shackleton's, their old, like, perfectly preserved field stations that are 
now like historic monuments i would shit my pants if i ever got to go Uh, (laughs) and and it's just so like breathtakingly beautiful too yeah um and you know you you can sit in a hot tub on the deck of your cruise ship and look at these like amazing like icebergs and like craggy iced up coastlines and like like i want to do that so bad (laughs) well they do cruises do it yeah uh costs a lot of money but yeah (laughs) late honeymoon yes very (laughs) (laughs) so in an interview jill talks about why she is drawn to these unique but dangerous ecosystems saying people look into caves and they see nothing but darkness terror fear and claustrophobia i look into a cave and i want to know what's around the next corner which we are not the same girl but it's exactly what we keep talking about with all of it's like what makes you not have our mindset what makes you have that mindset yeah um i just find it fascinating so while she loves the work she estimates that she has lost more than a hundred friends and colleagues to underwater caves and technical diving yeah acknowledging the dangerous aspects of the profession yeah that shit's so dangerous it's like so the dangerous. most dangerous recreational activity in the world. Yeah. Or sport. I, yeah. No, I don't even. No. I don't. We've talked no. about this many times. Yeah. I feel like I just don't need to say anything more than just like, I no, no, thank you. Mm-hmm. So, but this whole thing that she did is so like interesting because it's so different than any other cave diving that I've come across. So. She got a little more than she bargained for in 2002 when she was part of a scientific and filmmaking expedition to the B-15 iceberg in Antarctica aboard the RV Braveheart. Um, The B-15 iceberg was significant as it was the size of Jamaica when it broke off the Ross Ice Shelf in 2000. That's a big iceberg. It's the biggest known iceberg that has ever existed oh yeah really mm-hmm. i feel like there would have been bigger ones like the titanic one no that one wasn't that big oh that's actually uh uh a misconception oh i mean it was decently sized but consider the, the like an ice, you can see jamaica on a map yeah you know? that's very true yeah I like imagine an iceberg that big. i see your point <laughs> I mean, um, you can see on um, slide one, kind of just the scale. They can't fit the iceberg in a single photo unless you do it from satellite. Are we talking about the one on the upper left, that picture? Yeah. Or the one with the map? Well, they're both B-50. And the one on the bottom shows its drift along the Ross uh, or along the Antarctic coast um, and how it kind of started to begin fracturing as it moved along into smaller and smaller icebergs um but that's pretty astronomically sized (laughs) so it fractured off in 2002 and it drifted until 2006 yeah and we'll get into a little bit more about march of 2006 i was reading these dates so weirdly i was like what the fuck what month is month 15 (laughs) Because it, it's do written, day, month, year. 
it's written in the European style. Yeah, I was like, what? <laughs> oh, we got there. It's fine. So Jill and her husband, Paul Heinerth, were watching satellite photos of this large iceberg and began to think about pitching an idea to National Geographic with the goal of becoming the first people to cave dive inside of an iceberg. I bet National Geographic just ate that shit up, too. Oh, yeah. And also to gather important data and footage for scientists on the expedition. But yeah. I think a lot of it was like, let's see if we can even do this. Like, Yeah. Um, I mean, and she knows she's like risking her life while they're filming that, too. Mm-hmm. No, they're they're well aware. Yeah. It's like, hey, I'm going to go almost kill myself or like I'm going to go maybe kill myself. You right. want to come come film me? See if I don't. <laughs> hey, you just want to come along for the ride? You know, it could be yeah. fun. You might die, too. You never know. <laughs> I honestly when like they film shit like that, I'm like, who's the camera guy? Like what yeah. qualifications do you have as the camera guy? pretty pretty good ones it turns out (laughs) yeah dear jesus christ that just yeah so diving in ice has been done many times before even near icebergs it's uh you know like um uh dry suit diving um and that's how they get all that footage underneath the sea ice and stuff in antarctica and in the arctic And it's even been done near icebergs, but most iceberg diving is done along the vertical wall of the iceberg as it plunges into the sea. Yeah. Um, Never underneath the iceberg or within it, within an ice cave. And most large icebergs have holes and pockets and caves within them, just as, you know, different sections melt faster than others and they might have like wave impacts on the iceberg that causes you know a cave to form are like air pockets a thing too when the ice was like freezing yeah yeah okay a lot of like smart physics stuff that i don't (laughs) i never took physics so don't put me down for that i almost failed terrible at math so So B-15 at the time was the largest moving object on the planet uh, and is also the largest iceberg and re- the largest iceberg in recent history. When it broke off in 2000, it was 4,200 square miles in size. Um, it split in two in November of 2002 um, and the largest remaining piece of it, a fragment called B-15A, was still 1,200 square miles in size. Um, It broke apart finally on October 27th of 2005. However, the last tracked piece of this iceberg is still out there. Um, B-15 was so big, it impacted local weather, preventing the 2004-2005 summer breakup of the sea ice in McMurdo, McMurdo Sound. So you said your friend was in mm-hmm. McMurdo the station. Yeah. So it impacted the breakup of the sea ice in the sound area and caused a catastrophic decline in a daily penguin population. Oh no, not the penguins. <laughs> and basically this was because the parrots and the chicks had to travel farther to reach the sea because the sea ice was still there because there's a massive iceberg blocking Aww. the sea ice. Poor babies. Changing weather patterns. Um, side note real quick. Yeah. 
isn't it kind of annoying where scientists just name these things with a number and a letter instead of just naming it like Angela, like storms, <laughs> you know, just like, yeah. name the, like, well, you know, go with the alphabet. Like it's the A's this year. Like, yeah, no, absolutely. What would you, okay. What would you name it? I don't know why Angela just popped in my mind, but <laughs> I'm just going to stick with that one. I'm feeling Berta, you know, like big Berta, yeah, big bird. Yeah. Yeah. Big yeah. Bertha or big Berta. Yeah. 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 So this berg was so big that it even impacted annual uh, research station resupplies to McMurdo. They couldn't get Gosh, in. Because it takes too long to get there. Well, they right? couldn't get anything in by ship. Oh, that sucked. Because all the sea ice was still there. Yeah. They had to fly it all in. That's really annoying. Yeah. <laughs> so that's how big it was. <laughs> like, this thing was massive. Weather pattern changing. Yes. It's definitely a problem. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so there's reportedly been a larger iceberg spotted in the South Pacific Ocean in 1956. That okay. was 31,000 square kilometers or about the size of Belgium. Uh, <laughs> however, there is limited data available on this historic iceberg as we didn't have like satellites and stuff yet. Yeah. Wallace said that the breaking of B-15 is part of a long-term natural cycle. Concern about climate change impacting the frequency of these giant icebergs is growing. Um, because we get one of these things like every couple years. That is, yeah, it causes big. problems, clearly. Yeah. yeah. Climate change, real thing. Look it it's, up. It is. It very much is. Um, and B-15, I, in my opinion, is just kind of a sign of the times. Yeah, you know what else is a sign of the times mm. is uh there is still like hurricane formations out in the Atlantic right now. Mm. There's like a disturbance like <laughs> in the Atlantic. Just in time the for news Christmas. The other day. <laughs> I know. So it's like hurricane season should have ended like, you know, a couple weeks ago. Like <laughs> Clearly it nope. hasn't. Nope. But it's going like it's going like northeast. Mm. And it just, I don't know. And then another one comes off of like Maine, like right after it. It's just oh, like all so of they it. could like, get slammed with like some nor'easters then because of that. So if you look on Windfinder and you do the weekly scrolly thing forecast, all you see is a bunch of these swirls out in the Atlantic that just goes northeast towards Europe. Yeah. And then like it's like another one comes off of the main Canada area goes that way. And it's just like all of these swirls are happening out there. And I'm like, dear God, like, <laughs> like why? Meanwhile, we've had like droughts and then like record rains all in the same year. Like when we went to Big Bend, like literally a month before we went, they had like record flows in the Rio Grande. Oh my God. And you could tell because everything was covered in this layer of silt and had been flattened down like, yeah. in the whole area. It was wild. It's crazy. <laughs> Nature, man. <laughs> It'll kill you. Yeah, it will. <laughs> you know, that's, that's, it's like when they say the title in the movie. <laughs> yeah. You're like, they said it. They, they said, said it. it. <laughs> um, or like when they sing the like song name in a song. It's mm -hmm. like, ah, <laughs> there it is. All right, so back to Mother Nature Will Kill You. Yes, 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 yes. During the pitch to Nat Geo at the time, they were not even sure that there were caves inside of icebergs. But she states that we figured that if this great 
crack had broken this piece off the ice sheet, then there had to be other cracks. It was simply a hypothesis. So at the time, they didn't really know. And you the thought was that a hypothesis. Uh, well, yeah. And so we got to go prove it yeah. by going inside an iceberg. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the thought was that as the iceberg scrapes across the bottom of the seafloor, it would start breaking into pieces along the fractures and crevices, and they would be able to swim inside and find tunnels. But before we get into the caving, let's talk about exactly what an iceberg is. So an iceberg is a piece of freshwater ice more than 15 meters long. So it can be anywhere from meters to thousands of square miles in size that has broken off a glacier or an ice shelf and is floating freely in open salt water. Uh, Smaller chunks of floating ice are called growlers or bergy bits, which is adorable bergy bits bergy bits that's like it sounds like you know those little candy like it's like the fruit candy hamburgers yeah that's like what i feel like those (laughs) should be called (laughs) the bergy bits little hamburgers um (laughs) typically uh one tenth of the iceberg is above water as the density of pure ice is about 920 kilograms per meters cubed, whereas seawater is about uh, 1,000 kilograms per meters cubed. So when you look at that, it makes up one-tenth. The math checks out, people. I was like, you're losing me. (laughs) You're losing me with the numbers. Well, (laughs) considering that seawater is about one-tenth more uh dense than ice it makes sense that only one tenth of the iceberg would be above the water yes that's what the math checks out so icebergs especially large ones can reach over 100 meters or 300 feet in height above the sea surface which is huge that's like several 10 that's like a 30 story building basically okay um, the largest was uh, the largest iceberg in the North Atlantic was 168 meters or 555, sorry, 551 feet above sea level, which made it as tall as a 55 story building. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Um, Jeez, icebergs are usually tall. white as they are covered in snow, but they can be a variety of colors, including green, blue, yellow, black, striped or rainbow color due to seawater, algae, sediment, or lack of air bubbles. And I totally meant to add a picture. I was going to say, why didn't you? I want to see this rainbow (laughs) iceberg. Go look them up. Go look them up. I'm going to look them up right now. I imagine it's like similar to like sediment samples, how you said like, it's just like, yeah, but it does look pretty cool when they have those like bands in them. Yeah. I like the streaky bands. Yeah. And I guess technically it's rainbow if your rainbow was very muted. Yeah, I see that. Yeah. It's still cool, though. That is. But, but they say, like, rainbow, and I'm expecting, like, gay pride flag. Like, come on. It's not going to be very bright. Yeah. <laughs> it's like it's really neat. It reminds me of, like, I don't know, some sort of, like, geode. Mm-hmm. Or, like, I don't know. Like yeah, it looks like a, like a sandstone rock. Yeah, like a kinda. kitchen countertop. <laughs> Oh, marble. Yeah, it looks like marble. Yeah. yeah. 
So icebergs provide a lot of ecosystem services. They can inject fresh water in the form of meltwater into the ocean and serve as breakwaters against waves. Icebergs mm. also contain concentrations of nutrients and minerals that are released into the ocean via melting. These can contribute to blooms of phytoplankton, which then kick off the whole ecosystem. Uh, they can also reflect a lot of the sun's energy back into the atmosphere and away from the ocean, which can help prevent ocean warming. This is because of the albedo effect in which dark colors typically are better at absorbing light and white or light colors are better at reflecting light. Um, this is why the melting of polar ice can even further speed up global and ocean warming since there is less white in the area to reflect the sun's energy and therefore the ocean continues to warm up and then this in turn melts even more ice lowering the poles albedo effect even further this is why studying ice and icebergs is so important to understanding climate change acceleration especially in this part of the world hmm. That's so interesting. There's, there's some science a little smidgen of physics yeah let's get back to the death and horror <laughs> she's like over Dear there God. falling asleep like uh-huh yeah i'm like please not right now albedo effect yeah yeah. So tired. <laughs> Too tired for this. So, let's get back to the expedition in which scientists would study and dive on B-15. Jill was an experienced cave diver uh, and had other cave explorers on her team. She was familiar with what would happen to the gear and the risks from ice diving. She states that prepping for any dive, she goes through extensive safety checks on all of her gear. Then she closes her eyes and imagines all of the horrible things that could happen. Well, at least she's trying to prep herself. Like, I think that's smart. She stated, I actually think about what would kill me today, but I envision myself solving each of one of those problems. So it's a strange little positive spin. Yeah. <laughs> on it. Um, sure. So they would be using rebreathers, which is a closed circuit mixed gas system that allows divers to reuse air and stay underwater longer, which are used typically in cave diving, but rarely used in ice diving. Jill states that there are other physical challenges with ice diving, stating that when you first jump into the water, you get an immediate rush, somewhat like a brain freeze as the water hits your face. Yeah, oh, um, that'd be the worst. Yeah, so you automatically take very quick deep breaths to knock out or knock back the cold. When you start uh, to look at your surroundings, it's hard to focus due to the blur of salt water mixing with that fresh melt water from the ice slurry at the surface. Oh. Yeah, so that's another thing. That. You have to push the ice chunks aside and submerge further to see anything before you can descend down. I wouldn't like that. <laughs> like, at all. I don't even like diving in, like, like low-vis water. Yeah. The thing is, once you get underneath, it would be super clear. Yeah, so know? I'd, like, panic for a couple feet, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I'd, like, give myself a shock with the cold water. I'd hyperventilate. Mm -hmm. And then I would panic for yeah. a couple feet. That just doesn't sound great to me. Doesn't sound like a fun time. No, I'd rather not do that <laughs> at all. 
So Jill states of seeing B-15 for the first time that her heart uh, was racing. It was beautiful. It was sculptural. I also had a feeling of reverence. This ice is endangered. And I had the sense that I was looking at something that would never be the same again. And so I felt very privileged. She also stated that she was nervous on the first dive, not necessarily for herself, but for her uh, partners and uh, filmmaker Wes Skiles and husband Paul, as they had never done an ice dive before, although both had dove in caves before. The expedition created a camp on a nearby smaller iceberg called Patience Camp in honor of Shackleton uh, to launch their expeditions, prep gear, and practice diving around a smaller iceberg before they went and did the big one. As soon as Wes got in the water, water started pouring into his dry suit. Oh, uh, no. Yeah. Did he yeah. get out? Because that's uh, like hypothermic so- <laughs> shock. <laughs> So the water there is like around like it's like uh one to four degrees and it's very cold. And that's uh Fahrenheit. Yeah, that's Fahrenheit. Oh, okay. Yeah, so very cold. Um I had to do some quick se- uh Celsius to Fahrenheit math like about an hour ago. So I already have that page pulled up if you need some conversions. Or maybe it's Celsius. It might be Celsius. Anyway, <laughs> I don't know. I just remember learning that in class. A yeah. long time ago. I think it's Celsius. It is Celsius. Okay. Um, so even though he should have gotten out of the water immediately, he decided to shoot a minute of footage to see what his new camera could do. So, you know, priorities. I don't blame him. I would have probably done the same thing. Yeah. Jill states of the danger of getting water into a dry suit in Antarctica. Uh, one minute is dangerous. I mean, you very, very quickly lose the ability to manipulate your hands or operate or even think straight. Um, by the time he'd shot a minute, he was almost uh, incapacitated. Oh, no. Uh, considering his suit was like full of water at this point, he was so heavy that Jill, Paul and the first mate, Matt, had to all push and pull him back on up onto the boat. He had to immediately strip down and get into his bunk back on the Braveheart to warm up after just one minute of being in Antarctic waters without any protection on his skin. Oh, my God. <laughs> so that's what that's dive number one. That sounds miserable. Yeah. So but they're, they keep going. So upon arriving at B-15, Jill and Paul decided to do the first dive inside the iceberg while Wes and the first mate stayed aboard the boat. Jill describes finding a deep vertical fissure uh, crack in the iceberg and she and Paul descended into the crevasse in hopes of finding a cave. Um, And you can see that on slide three. Mm -hmm. That's the crevasse that they actually descended down into. It's not a crevice. It's a crevasse. (laughs) Sorry, I just had to. That was fine. (laughs) I like saying crevasse better, so I'm just going to say crevasse. (sighs) Uh, So they continued descending down into the dark about 130 feet until they found the seafloor, which Jill stated was deeper than she had wanted to dive in Antarctica. But at the bottom, they had found What? I said, oh, whoopsies. Deeper than she wanted to dive. Whoops. (laughs) Whoops. Um, (laughs) 
Yeah, so, but at the bottom, they had found a passage into the interior of the iceberg. What's more, as they moved into the cave passage, they found an environment on the seafloor that no one had ever seen before. She described finding a shag carpet of filter-feeding organisms. This is now known to be a common but unique ecosystem found under Antarctic ice, which is dominated by echinoderms like sea stars, sea cucumbers, sea urchins, colorful worm species, and giant isopods. Um, And they all live incredibly long in the cold water. And you can see that on the next slide. Um, It's just So question real quick. So they scaled down like the face of the iceberg until they found a hole. And then they went in that hole. Yeah. Gotcha. Just going right up there, right up that hole. (laughs) Yeah. I just wanted to make sure I like was visualizing this correctly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So of this unique environment, Jill says the ice around us was blue and white and clear, sometimes like a robin's egg, sometimes like deep turquoise. But the seafloor was red and orange and yellow. Every warm color, the contrast was stunning. This community was likely formed by underwater currents funneling nutrients deep underneath the iceberg. The isopods that were there were the size of her hand. Ew. Yeah. And started raining down from cracks over my head and crawling along the floor and hitting my camera and landing on my shoulder. It was Ew, like I would freak out. I would I would hate that so much. Oh, I would hate that so much. She stated it was like horror story material. Yeah. Okay, so like for those of you who don't know this, isopods are parasites essentially. And well, they're not all parasites. But like they get into like other organisms and like make a parasite. But they're like bugs. They're yes. like they're they're buggy. Like I mean, they're essentially if you know cockroaches what a, in the sea. Like well, the, it, they're actually they're icky. Related closer to um like pill bugs. Okay. Or roly polies. Okay, but they it, it's <laughs> it's they're icky. So Honestly, just imagine a giant uh, roly poly falling onto you as you're swimming through an underwater ice cave. <laughs> uh, I no, I couldn't even. Jillian and I found a couple when we were like working at Vim's a long, long time ago, and they were probably like the size of like your index fingernail, maybe like a little bit mm-hmm. longer. I couldn't deal with those. I can't imagine like this one's the size of your hand landing on you and like multiple of them. I would freak. I would freak out. Well, There's... and especially considering that that species of isopod that we found are the kind that are parasitic and like to go and eat uh, fish's tongues and then they replace the tongues in the mouth. Yeah. So when you open the fish's mouth, there's a little friend inside. <laughs> yeah, it was nasty. I used well, to call it them. it was crawling out of its mouth. I was like, what is that thing? <laughs> there's actually a horror movie about that exact thing um, and it's in the ch- set in the Chesapeake Bay and I think it's called like The Bay or something really? like that. Really? Mm-hmm. Oh, I'd have to watch that. That seems kind of funny. Seems yeah. like a satire horror movie. Yeah. I used to call them mouth friends. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> call them mouth friends. <laughs> so anyway, that's what an isopod is. <laughs> yeah. And as you can tell, I have some very strong feelings about them. Yeah. So 
isopods aside, they also found these small ice fish that were about the size of a thumb and had been living in small burrows inside of the ice. So it was a very like unique fish. They also heard strange clicks, cracks, and groans from the ice above their head as the island-sized iceberg moved above them. That's eerie, and I would not like that either. Mm-mm. Uh, Jill states, I remember at one point a very deep groaning vibration sounded and I felt it all the way, uh, through to my toes. It was that loud. Yeah. No, (laughs) a hard no. It was at that point that they decided to slowly work their way back towards the entrance of the cave. Hey guys, like when the iceberg starts talking to us, like maybe we should turn around and go home. (laughs) Great plan. Unfortunately... Upon return to the entrance, giant chunks of ice had wedged themselves into the entrance of the cave, closing off the exit. So Jill quickly realized that the dive was becoming a life or death experience. uh, And knowing now that every breath was currency, they were forced to search for a way around the chunks of ice and slowly found their way out through the gaps As they surfaced, they did a safety stop at 20 feet, and she could see Wes and Matt were celebrating above um, on the boat. Oh, cool. Uh, They were celebrating Jill and Paul's return. So it turned out that while they were under there, the iceberg uh, calved and a chunk of ice fell into the ocean. (laughs) Get the fuck out of here. And so people that are topside are like, holy shit, they're probably dead. Yeah. And then when they see them, they're like, oh my God, they made it. Oh, I would, yeah, that makes perfect sense why they're so excited. Uh, so the piece of ice had almost capsized the dive boat that they were working off oh of. Oh my God. Yeah. And must have been what blocked the exit, basically. Yeah. And like Wes and Matt had no way to like mount a rescue expedition to get. Yeah, definitely like, not. So that was dive number two. Uh, <laughs> so how many dives Jill- did they do? Uh, I think they did four total. Okay, gotcha. So we did two. Yeah, so we're moving on to three now. Gotcha, gotcha. And there is some shit that happens on every single one of these dives. No way. Every single one is like a life or death situation. I would be out by the first life or death situation. You'd be out the minute your dry suit filled with water. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I would be out for that. There are so many times throughout this experience that I would be mm-hmm. out. So while Jill felt as if she had learned more about cave diving into an iceberg, she knew there was still a lot of environmental factors at play surrounding diving in an iceberg. And nobody had written a handbook for what they were about to do because nobody had done it before. Rule number one, just don't yeah. go in. So why is diving an iceberg so difficult? First of all, fucking cold. because it's cold. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> First, icebergs are always uh, calving and moving once they break free of a landbound glacier, a danger that Jill and Paul got to experience on their first dive. Mm-hmm. Also, salt water doesn't freeze. Instead, just the water freezes, leaving the salt to drop out into the ocean water, which makes the ocean around the iceberg actually saltier than normal seawater. Um, And so when the iceberg melts, it's mixing fresh water into the salt water and salt water is denser than fresh water. So it'll sink and the fresh water floats up to the surface and it creates a lot of strange currents around the iceberg that can be impossible to predict. 
Mm. In addition, the cold water itself could be a killer, right? Especially when tied to cave diving. Even though the divers had rebreathers that could let them dive underwater longer, the extreme cold of the water could make long dives deadly, especially if they have a long decompression time before they come up. They just have to sit there in this literally ice cold water. So it could be a choice between decompression sickness or hypothermia, which is why most ice dives are not that deep. And remote vehicles are used for dives deeper than 100 feet. So that's a little tidbit into that. So despite this experience, Jill felt confident enough to give it another try the following day. Oh, my God. (laughs) Knowing that at least she knew more than she had known yesterday. Uh, She stated that the entrance to the cave looked stable and she and Paul quickly dove down to the seafloor. And entered the cave again to begin filming the sea life that they had seen before. Soon, however, Jill noticed the current picking up, getting stronger and stronger by the minute, until all of a sudden the current was racing. This was what I was talking about with mm-hmm. that, like mixing of salt and fresh, and it, it does weird things to the current. So she dug her hand into the seafloor to stop herself from rushing back, but the sea floor was soft and her whole body kind of cartwheeled around her hand when they tried to swim back towards the exit they could not kick hard enough to move against the current Mm. so jill remembers the moment distinctly saying and we looked at each other and went oh boy we're being sucked inside an iceberg oh boy it's like what what did we say that one time my god <laughs> you know that i forget what episode it was but remember oh yeah the way that they talked i was like my god my god <laughs> like oh, we're boy. being pulled inside an iceberg yeah <laughs> oh, uh, <boy>. so <laughs> oh hey i'm alive oh hey <laughs> jill stated however that they could see a blue light in the distance um of the ice cave which meant that there was sunlight coming through the ice which meant that there was another exit but they had no idea how far away that exit was from them Hmm. especially considering the whole iceberg was the size of an island so they could see it but who knows how far it is away yeah uh they made a quick decision to go with the flow and no pun intended and swim towards the other doorway which was likely the reason for the strong current as they had little choice but to do this it took a long time before they reached the doorway and jill thought okay we're out however when they surfaced they realized their trouble was not over as they couldn't see the boat and the ice all around them was higher than what they could see over bobbing at the surface well at least they were out though yeah but they're just bobbing around in the middle of like the Southern Ocean. <laughs> I know, but still, I feel like you don't I, like you have your BC, right? So it's like you can float. Yeah, but right? considering how cold it is. Yeah, I guess it's cold. <laughs> but like, at least you're not running out of air underwater, possibly this is, drowning. <laughs> this is true. Looking at the positives, I guess. <laughs> I always mm-hmm. want to bring us down. I just want to drag us down to the depths like the lesser of two evils would you rather be like questionably running out of air and then pop yeah. up or be like popped up safe and need to kind of scurry around and try to figure out where you're at yeah 
Plus, I feel like suffocation, drowning, that kind of death is suckier than dying of hypothermia. Yeah, it's very traumatizing. Um, I, I don't know. I've not been through either, so I can't. I pray I never get. I can't really give you a uh, like five star rating on either. You know, <laughs> ten out of ten recommended way to die. <laughs> ten out of ten. Hypothermia was awesome. It really sucked for a long time, and then it got really warm and really bright, and I just felt real cozy. And it was, you know, I just went on to the light, man. It was awesome. God. I never wanted to experience that. So, so they realized they couldn't see the boat. Jill describes the fear she felt being in this situation, saying time gets so compressed and takes on a strange nature when you're scared. When you think there's a possibility you might die and everything's out of your control. Um, she wasn't sure if they had been waiting for 15 minutes or half an hour, but she began shaking due to the cold. Soon, however, they heard the noise of a boat pulling up the anchor, and this was because the dive boat had lost its anchorage due to the sudden current. Oh. Um, this, or that is when Jill saw a glimpse of the stern of the dive boat around the vertical side of the iceberg, and they were able to flag them down and get picked up. Even after all of these shenanigans... They decided to dive a fourth time with Wes because he was so impressed with the footage that the two of them had brought back that he'd wanted to film it himself with the best camera they had, which these are big adventure types. So starting to get a little greedy there, Wes. And we all know when we start getting a little greedy, things start turning a little bit more south. (laughs) And these are like great filmmakers. Like some of their work is on like bbc's planet earth and yeah and Blue planet so if you've ever no watched doubt, no doubt that they're great filmmakers but like you know after your third time of almost dying you'd think that maybe you should just not well wes did not he didn't go the first two times they died b15 oh okay he was the one so he only his- almost died once yeah right got it <laughs> <laughs> so However, they, after they dove down and em- entered the cave, uh, the current picked up again. So they quickly made the decision to leave. Um, at this point, they were 700 feet into the cave, 700 feet from the entrance. Even though they were literally pulling themselves along the seafloor, they realized they may not be able to make it out. Oh, come on. Jill says of the experience, I mean, my biceps, my triceps, my forearms were shaking, pulling with every bit of energy I had to get back toward that crevasse. Wes was losing ground and asked for help with the camera. And Jill said that at that moment, she thought, fuck the camera, we might die. Oh my God. Yeah. Fuck the camera. Paul managed to help Wes with a camera and they finally managed to get back toward the entrance, but the current was pouring down the crevasse, pressing them back down onto the seafloor every time they tried to swim up. Jill didn't know how to get up the crevasse, especially since the walls were basically just slippery ice, so they couldn't get a grip on anything. Mm -hmm. So Jill suddenly remembered that they had been studying the small ice fish in their burrows. 
and realized that these small holes could be used as climbing holds for the divers. Oh, wow. That's smart. So she managed to jam a finger or two into these little holes and began pulling herself back up towards the surface 130 feet above their heads. That's so smart. Right? Wes and Paul followed, and they were eventually able to surface after taking gratuitous decompression stops due to the amount of time they had been at depth fighting the current. Upon returning to the ship after the dive, the science officer told them that they were two hours overdue, and Jill remembered looking up and saying, the cave tried to keep us today. Yeah, like, as, as it did every other time you were there. Right. And honestly, that guy being like, "There, you're two hours overdue. He's like, about fucking time you showed up. Like... <laughs> Two hours overdue. So even after all of that, and although they knew Mother Nature had been giving them a very clear warning. There's more? Yeah. Oh, my God. What did they do This is a twist. This is a twist. So they still decided they wanted to do one more dive. However, this time they would dive at the moment the current slacked or slackened. After preparing the gear for the dive, they sat down for lunch when they heard yells coming from expedition members above deck. They ran up onto the deck and saw that the iceberg was calving again. The cave that they had just been inside of was collapsing into pieces. Uh. Jill states, the whole square mile of ice we had just been inside was breaking apart and dissolving into the sea. I realized that if we had been in the water, we'd be dead. Yes. Yes, you would. (laughs) The collapsing of their study site marked the end of the iceberg cave diving for the expedition. And the Braveheart began making its way back north. So what are the odds that just after they get off that dive, the the odds were in her favor for sure. (laughs) which just kind of highlights this kind of like temporal nature of this habitat like you would will never be able to dive that cave again even if you wanted to Mm -hmm. it's just gone it's different than like like a terrestrial rock based cave i guess i'd like to see the footage they got though is that like on some sort of like national geographic show yeah okay yeah i'll have to go find it which is really cool I don't know. I just, the whole like ephemeral nature of these caves is so interesting to me. So Jill stated that when they returned home, most people thought they were insane for returning to the cave again and again, stating they were extremely lucky. Yeah. Yeah. And she said, but for me, it was so worth it to have that experience to document a place that maybe no one will ever see again. Upon dealing with things going wrong during a very dangerous dive, she states, when something terrible happens, it's really easy for you, uh, for your mind to just explode into these like chattering monkeys. It's like your emotions want to take over. You start to breathe fast. Your heartbeat starts to race. You have to turn that all off. So I take a really deep breath and try to slow my heart, slow my breathing And then just focus on pragmatic small steps. Like the big picture of survival is sometimes so hard to see, but we always know what we can do to make the next best step towards survival. So really it's all about controlling emotions and controlling your breathing. Two things that are very hard for me to do. Yeah. 
but sage advice yes uh jill has continued to dive on various cave systems creating footage for many amazing product projects and helping contribute to what we know about caves both in archaeology and biology she has recently written and published a book called into the planet which talks about this encounter with the iceberg as well as many other cave diving experiences that she's had during her professional life she also talks of her courage at these depths saying people often say you must be fearless i am not fearless i try to do everything to prepare for risk and i work through my head how i'm going to solve that but you can't always predict what's going to go wrong when you're doing something that's never been done before mm-hmm. it's very true and that is the story of jill heinerth and this brief once in a lifetime antarctic cave iceberg diving experience extravaganza i like it yeah it's good so it has all of our favorite things Yes, it does. But um, surviving. But no one died, so. Yes, my favorite thing is surviving. That's what I thought we were talking about. <laughs> we talk about both dying and surviving on this podcast. Yeah. That's true. <laughs> a little bit of column A, column B. Okay. So, cool. so do we want to uh, have our, our little conservation corner? Yeah, for sure. So cool. cool, cool. Yeah, so that was that crazy story, um, which I found on TikTok from Geosaurus. And if you don't follow her, go follow her. She makes amazing content. I'm pretty sure that's what it is. If it's not, it'll be in the notes. I'm pretty sure that's what it is. So my sources were The Cave Tried to Keep Us, The First Ever Dive Inside an Iceberg by Jill Heinerth and Matthew Stock for wbur which is boston's npr station Mm. uh cave diver risks all to explore places where nobody has ever been by dave davies of npr um and i looked up both icebergs and iceberg or iceberg b15 on wikipedia (laughs) nice good old wikipedia wiki and then um I actually watched the antarctica ice island expedition documentary that they made based off of all of this and it's um on youtube and it's put out by national geographic so oh, cool. go check that out good deal yeah so i guess we're just gonna go right into the animals huh conservation corner is yeah, what i conservation corner i like that yeah <laughs> yeah so antarctica pretty cold environment right mm-hmm. it's actually the coldest driest and windiest continent on earth Mm-hmm. The average temperature here is about negative 71 degrees Fahrenheit. No. Because I did the conversion. Nope. No. <laughs> <laughs> there is on uh, that this uh the negative 71 degrees Fahrenheit, that's interior. Right. Right. So on the coast, it's a bit warmer with a balmy 14 degrees Fahrenheit. <laughs> yes. Which like I've camped in 14 degrees before. Handle so that. like it's actually like, I feel like that's tolerable, all things considering. That's, that's like, the coldest temperature it hit during our freeze. Yeah. Yeah. So, it's like, okay, I could yeah. handle that. I'll just be on the coast of Antarctica. I'm not going to be in the middle. Same. I don't, no I don't want, I just want to go look at the whales and the seals and stuff, like. Yeah. So, <laughs> speaking of whales and seals, you know, those are two of the handful of species that are in Antarctica. 
mm-hmm. if you're an animal here, you're going to want to have like some thick skin, you yeah. know, maybe like a warm coat. Uh-huh. So some species in Antarctica include penguins, whales, seals, birds and invertebrates mm-hmm. which we talked about mm-hmm. little isopods <laughs> yeah i don't like those things but yeah <sighs> for this episode we're going to talk about the emperor penguin because Ooh. they got some pretty cute behavior and honestly like i just like emperor penguins i think they're pretty neat so that's why i picked them there's I mean, a bunch it's... of different other penguin species there but emperor yeah. penguins are are there as well they're the happy feet penguins. Yeah. And like, I don't know. My dad likes penguins. And it was just pretty funny because one time in high school, I came home and he's like really glued to the TV. And I was like, what are you watching? And I like turned around and I see it's like March of the Penguins. And he is just like <laughs> on the edge of his seat, like thinks it's the coolest thing ever. So I was like, yeah, I'll look up some penguins for dad today. Yeah. Um, so their first cute behavior, they find a rock, a special rock. And they give it to the penguin that they want to mate with. Mm-hmm. So you could say that the emperor penguins have a gift-giving love language. They put a ring on it. Yeah. It's, yeah, or it's a, a rock. rock. Yeah, it's right? a rock. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little smooth pebble. The smoothest pebble you could ever find. Oh, my goodness. So the second cute behavior is that once the female lays the egg, she passes it off to the male to incubate it. So we love a stay-at-home dad. Yes. The equal, female. Equal parental workload yes. thank <laughs> yes. you <laughs> yes the female emperor penguins will lay one singular egg around the month of may or june and then pass it off to the male to incubate it while she hunts and feeds for the next nine weeks while mm-hmm. the female is out the male is carefully balancing the egg on his feet and keeps the temperature of the egg warm by keeping it in a specialized brood pouch that they have like underneath their bellies uh the male will carry the egg for 65 to 75 days and then poof out comes the chick and it's covered in feathers and like it's really like warm obviously because it's a chick in a cold environment so like they adapt to that shit Mm -hmm. um and some cool facts about penguins um their colonies have literally been discovered from space so in 2012 a survey that was led by the british scientists used a satellite imagery to count penguin colonies based off of yep you didn't guess it poop they were they saw they saw all the poop that were like stained from like the breeding sites. There's like poop stains on the breeding sites. So after that study was performed, there's thought to be about fifty-four emperor penguin colonies in in Antarctica. That we count by satellite via their shit stains, literally. Uh-huh. Yep. It's fucking rad. Science is I so love that cool. fact. That's a fun fact. That's a party fact. Next time you have a friend shit their pants, you'd be like, ah, did you know what that's like? (laughs) We can track you from space now. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) There's also approximately 595,000 emperor penguins in Antarctica. So 54 colonies totaling 595,000 emperor penguins. Mm -hmm. Emperor penguins are the largest of penguin species and one of the largest of all birds. They stand about the size of a six-year-old and weigh about 90 pounds but get this mm-hmm. the quote-unquote mega penguins which are i assume prehistoric penguins i'm not sure if that's like yes. the right terminology yes for like i've time frame. seen this I've yeah seen this. those guys those fossils show that those guys were six and a half feet tall and weighed more than like 250 pounds <laughs> like <laughs> they're fucking large 
like, a that linebacker thing could kill you. Yeah. It's <laughs> like like you think like little cute penguin today and then like think like six and a half foot, two hundred fifty pound animal just mm-hmm. like waddling around. Yeah, I'm sure the orca whales are pretty happy back in those times. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you get a nice meal out of that. Yeah. Damn. So emperors are uniquely adapted to survive the harsh conditions when the temperatures can drop down to a bone-chilling negative 58 degrees Fahrenheit and mm-hmm. winds up to 124 miles an hour. Ooh, what's That's... that on the Simpson Kefir scale? I've never even heard of that scale. The so hurricane could... scale? Oh, could not tell you. I want to know. I want to know. <laughs> Category sorry, five. <laughs> it is. Oh, sorry. Sapphire Simpson scale. My bad. Ah. My bad. That's a cat three, baby. Yeah. Category three. Hurricane. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I look at all wind speeds now is in terms of like what ca- category hurricane is that? That's fair. Yeah. <laughs> very fair. Um. So, yeah. So to survive these harsh conditions, they have two layers of feathers and a good reserve of fat. They are proportionally smaller in their beak size and flippers than other penguins and that is to prevent heat loss mm-hmm. emperor penguins also have feathers on their legs so their ankles don't get too chilly even their feet adapted to the icing conditions containing special fats that prevent them from freezing and strong claws for gripping the ice mm-hmm. but most remarkably colonies of adults and chicks work together to huddle for warmth 5,000 or more tightly packed adults and chicks shuffle around so each takes a turn on the outside to huddle where it's cold, but they don't do it for too long because it's cold out there. So they're mm-hmm. just like, everybody just takes a turn and keeps shuffling around in their big old cuddle puddle. It's the biggest like spooning orgy on the planet. And they're all just like <laughs> warm. Nice. It's like quality time. Yeah. Something like that. <laughs> Physical touch and quality time. Emperor penguins are known as the Olympic divers of the bird world. The deepest recorded dive is 564 meters, which equates to 1,080 or excuse me, 1,850 feet. That's fucking and deep. It's really deep. Yeah. And they don't get co- decompression sickness. Mm-mm. Mm. And the longest recorded dive was nearly 28 minutes. So okay. Hold your breath for a decent yeah. amount of time. Yeah. They eat a lot of krill, fish, and squid and can store this fat up to like be warm for the winter and mm-hmm. like have a food reserve for the winter, I guess. Or they can use it to feed their chicks. But mm-hmm. the males can go four months without eating from the time they arrive at the colony to breed until the eggs have hatched and the mother returns to feed. They lose almost half of their body weight during the time. Yeah. So they get skinny. All the they- stuff I've watched about emperor penguin colonies, like the males, it's like it's an endurance, like survival mm-hmm. experience where they're all just trying to snug yeah snug and, and not die like which is crazy it's like sad to think about too it's an interesting life history decision like what yeah. what penguin was like this sounds like a good idea <laughs> it's not a democracy over there <laughs> because most penguins like will uh have rookeries on the coast where it's not icy where there's like rocks and stuff so and some of them even do it on like geothermal islands so they're yeah. not having to worry about but like the emperors do it out on the ice. Yeah, bike, the ice flats. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah. And they spend their whole life there. But yeah, so that was uh my last fact was that they eat a lot of food that they can store it up in their bodies to use it for food reserve or to feed their chicks, but the males can go four months without eating. 
Mm-hmm. And they lose about half their body weight during the time, and they need to rely entirely on the reserve of body fat that they build up during the summer feast to survive the long winter. Mm-hmm. So those are the quick hard facts about emperor penguins. I got all of that from the World Wildlife Fund, and um, they got some stuff online if you want to like make a donation to penguins. Mm-hmm. Um. I think you can pick. I'm looking at the website right now. I think you can pick where you want to like put your donation. Um, but yeah, I don't know too much about penguin studies, but you can always keep giving to the penguin research because the penguins need you. I'm trying to think. I know that there are some issues with climate change facing the penguins, and I think it's more based around the ability of Antarctic waters to produce enough food for these colonies because these extremely cold waters are actually very rich in nutrients, especially in the summertime where they have these 24-hour days. And so all of the phytoplankton can just bloom and do their thing and then everything else can you know, eat it all and, and, and basically hunt for 24 hours straight. And so you can really build up a lot of fat reserves, but with, um, warming waters, there's less nutrients being introduced to the area via like currents and stuff. Yeah. Um, but I was wondering if there are any other like conservation issues. So their conservation status is near threatened, but their population is stable. So oh, that's good. They're they seem okay, but it's just one of those things. Like just because a a species is stable and not endangered doesn't mean that you should like not care. Right, right. <laughs> like you got to make sure that they're still staying alive. Well, and the the thing is, like, there's the the poles are are dealing with these extreme temperature fluctuations at a much more fast rate than like temperate or you know tropical areas um and so that that is kind of a concern that they're going to have potential you know just more potential for like complete collapse of like this this ecosystem yeah um so i'm i'm reading this protecting emperor penguins fact sheet um that there's industrial fishing for antarctic krill um as well that overlaps with the penguin foraging areas. Um, and there's concern that if sea ice coverage continues to decrease, uh, the penguins will have to travel further from their colonies to find food. Um, and oh. the concern is the longer the parents are away, the greater the likelihood the chicks will die because of predation and starvation. And so like, that's the big I knew there was something about having to travel further from their colonies that would that was a concern, but also I didn't realize there was industrial fishing for krill, and that's kind of like the basis of that entire food web. Yeah, that is. So that's interesting, and I'm looking at a lot of these like pictures of emperor penguins now, and it really just makes me want to watch Happy Feet. But (laughs) um, there's some good diagrams on here about like the life cycle of like the emperor penguin like like yeah. in april it's a, like march to rookery in april then may mating june july males incubate eggs hatching in august feeding chicks september to october 
Checks form groups to stay warm, October to November, and then adults leave, chicks fledge, ice breaks up in December, and then it's like the cycle. Males go to feed and repeat six more times, blah, 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 whatever. Um, but I'm curious the life history of a penguin. I should have looked into that more. Mm-hmm. But like, you know how they say like the mega penguin? Mm-hmm. how it's like how the fuck the penguins get to antarctica obviously it was png at one point so everything mm-hmm. was like connected but like were they originally like in a warmer climate and they just adopted to be in a colder climate or so i do know a little bit about this um yeah so after pangea there was like this breakup of the continent to two smaller continents there was our where like us in europe and asia and south america were all like in one and then like india australia and antarctica were in one called gondwana land and Mm. antarctica used to be in a much warmer climate Hmm. and i believe penguins are like the only terrestrial animal that survived after the continent drifted so far south into the cold that's interesting they they must have adapted I'll have to look but at that. That's just based on like what I remember learning in class. <laughs> yeah. And that's also kind of why uh, Australia still has marsupials because oh. they drifted apart and were very separate for a long time and they okay. never got placental mammals there. Interesting. I love biogeography, it's one of my favorite things. So, <laughs> a lot That's super survival. interesting. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> yeah, I wish. I, don't know, I wish there was like some like visual graphic that showed like m- the charismatic megafauna of today on like Pangea and then like mm-hmm. everything shifting over time and like where they're at now and like how mm-hmm. they changed. Like how I'm they sure evolved. there's something out there. We just have to go find it. Yeah. Okay. So I found this other article talking about because I was talking about how the sea ice is disappearing and this is a problem mm-hmm. for them. So and this this makes sense more now that I've looked at it. So because they rely on the sea ice for their breeding colonies, basically to avoid predators and Mm -hmm. then also to be close to the ocean um, to forage for food because the sea ice is just like disappearing. The colonies can't be there anymore and they're not adapted enough to go anywhere else. Yeah. So that's, that's the big issue here. Okay. Is that it's such a significant aspect of their life history that if they don't have it, it could be detrimental. Whereas like penguins that have rookeries on islands don't have the same issue. That's interesting. Yeah. So Hmm. climate change matters, people. It does. Think of the penguins. Think think of the penguins and the polar bears. (laughs) I know. Seriously. Gosh, like those like Sarah McLaughlin videos of like the polar bears, like dying on those in the yeah scrawny and underfed (laughs) uh no but for real it's really important Mm -hmm. it's important all right well that's cool yeah so that's all i got for you yeah learned more facts about antarctica today and talked talked a lot of ice talk (laughs) and ironically this room is freezing that i'm in i put my like fuzzy socks and a sweatshirt on I'm freaking sweating, but because <laughs> I'm up in the loft, I the hottest I room in the house. I think I acclimated to Florida weather because yesterday 
I had three layers on and I didn't like feel like overheated at once. Wow. But like, you know, when you're running on a boat, it's like cold. Yeah. Like the wind. Yeah. So. I mean, yeah. I, I wore so many layers this past week because it, it got down into the 30s while we were camping. So uh, that's fair. Yeah. yeah. It was like in the 70s, 80s when we were out. Yeah. It was like I had like, you know, a performance long sleeve on and then I had a sweatshirt on because I was like, it's cold at like 6 a.m., 7 a.m. Mm-hmm. when you're like out on a boat. Yeah, for and sure. Then, then it looked like rain. So I put a rain jacket on and I just like kept it on for the whole day. So, mm-hmm. yeah. All right. Well, let's do happy things, even though happy I don't things. need it as um, much this episode. Yeah. Uh, you want to go first with your happy thing? Um, I guess my happy thing is that I haven't been out west in a long long time and so it was really nice to get out there again and just be in the mountains and the desert and experience that and and just be in a place that's so vastly huge that it's it's kind of awe-inspiring oh and did I tell you so we went to Marfa Texas oh Yes. Tell me more about this. Prada Marfa and stuff like that. So we were hanging out with this Canadian couple and we decided to go see the Marfa lights, which they have like a viewing platform and everything. So you go out there and basically what the Marfa lights are, are like paranormal or extraterrestrial. Many people think, um, read what they say. Exactly. The Marfa lights, also known as the Marfa ghost lights, have been observed near U.S. Route 67 on the Mitchell Flat east of Marfa, Texas, in the U.S. They have gained some fame as onlookers have attributed them to paranormal phenomena such as ghosts, UFOs, or will of the wisps. So I saw something while I was out there. I would, I mean, I hope you would because, like, that's it seems like it's an attraction that happens all the time. Yeah. So I, I'm a cynic about these kinds of things, but I love like talking about the lore of them. So we went out there and I don't really have an explanation for what I saw. Yeah. Um, and we looked at a lot of different stuff. We're like, oh my God, there's a light over there. And then we're like, oh no, that's man made or oh, that's a reflection off of the car yeah. lights or oh, that's this and that. But what, and I saw this and the wife and the Canadian couple also saw this at the same time. It almost looked like a flare or like, like a firework, you know, those ones that kind of explode into a a bunch of tiny little lights. Yeah. There's just like one of them. Okay. And it moved very quickly and kind of made a, like a a zip de zip kind of line and there were no cars driving by at the time and there was nobody out there that could have fired like a flare gun or something yeah so i saw i saw a marfa light now whether it's an alien whether it's paranormal or whether it's just a weird atmospheric phenomenon that happens out there i did see something that i don't necessarily have an explanation for and Corey saw something similar like 45 minutes later on the horizon that's cool so that was cool we also went to this bar that was in somebody's house oh (laughs) i feel like you had to be like a marfa local to know about 
but it was decorated like completely decorated like a 1960s like christmas acid trip that's funny and it was like a blast and i was like this is exactly what i want out of marfa is this (laughs) what's up with the prada store that's there like why is that a thing it's an art installation okay that makes a lot more sense yeah so marfa is like very like high art which kind of are the aspects of it i didn't enjoy because i felt very pretentious i'm like i'm out here to see some aliens drink some liquor and hang out in a weird junky art house bar you know what i mean like i'm i'm not here to like sip on champagne and be like mm, yes yes you know about all of this. <laughs> like well you know this this whole arrangement in this painting is is you know really talking about how how the times and and the calamity of 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 the modern day is just contributing to society you know what i mean like that kind and of I'd be bullshit. like yeah it's a bouquet of flowers it looks pretty i don't know what to tell you exactly <laughs> exactly so, but we had fun and it was very, I couldn't explain it. That's all I'm saying. I didn't That's have I, uh, I don't know if you saw the comment I left on Corey's Facebook post, but I was like, oh, and here I am just thinking that the Marfa lights were just like some city light attraction that people like to go to. <laughs> I like literally Googled it because I, there's a song that I like and it's called the Marfa lights and it's uh-huh. by Caitlin Butts or Butts, however you pronounce her last name. And, um, and she like sings about the Marfa lights, and I was like, in my like in my head, I just thought it was like Marfa's her hometown, mm-hmm. talking about like the lights of her hometown, like walking like around her town, kind of thing. Did not occur to me it could be like UFOs. Oh yeah, it's totally UFOs. <laughs> Everything's like, weird oh. out there once you get out west. It's all it's always about aliens. Are you kidding me? Yeah. Well, you know, I stayed at an alien campground, like near the Great Sand Dunes. Oh yeah yeah oh i know exactly what you're talking about because i've been to to that national park too but i know yeah it's like it's literally like an old lady's farm that she just turned into like a theme and it's like nine dollars a camp spot it's great which is great we love it we love but there's like a um it's like a i don't know like a memory garden or like a donation garden or whatever you want to call it and like a watchtower and it's like you leave an item for the aliens kind of thing an offering (laughs) yeah and then like the little like house that's underneath the watchtower is like the little alien museum and it has like all the newspaper clippings of like all the sightings from like yes and everything but yeah it was uh that was fun emily and i accidentally got into a spirit circle that we thought was going to be like a s'more circle (laughs) so that was really interesting (laughs) Yeah, that was. I feel like that, that kind of shit just happens out there, you know. I know it was a fun memory, but like it was also like a weird vibe too. Like we definitely yeah. slept in her car. <laughs> You're like, mm, was this a cult? I'm not sure. <laughs> I was like, what did we just step into here? Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. So, what's your happy thing? Uh, my happy thing is that it's almost Christmas time. I'm yeah. so tired. <laughs> I'm like, I'm just ready for. Like, I just got to power through to, like, December 19th, and then we're going to Iowa. And I will be in cold weather, and I still have my cold weather clothes. So, yeah. Yeah, I just keep my big puffy winter jacket at my in-law's house, because I never need it here. (laughs) Yeah, I I got, like, a box of, like, winter jackets 
and like you know some flannels and longer sleeves and stuff but I just keep that in the closet when I need to yeah you never know when you're gonna have a freaking freeze happen so yeah gosh I just like I'm I'm just wanting it to be like consistently like in the 70s down here I feel like that'd be really nice Mm -hmm. it's been pretty nice weather recently though I can't complain it's been pretty nice Mm -hmm. yeah yeah that's a happy thing I wrapped a lot of presents today got that out of the way yeah I need to do that this weekend it's on my list yeah yeah all right well um where can our listeners find us our listeners can find us on instagram at mother nature will kill you podcast.com are we doing twitter still do we decide (laughs) technically yes i need to go okay i haven't had service for like a week so i haven't done anything about it cool okay (laughs) i mean like i've been starting to like read more news stuff on twitter and i'm like it's all i know it's so gross i think like just about every podcast i listen to are like jumping ship from twitter so yeah we will be doing the same okay because i didn't really even use it all that much so no i know twitter's a hellscape just instagram and tiktok are like way more fun so yeah um you can find us on twitter at m and wky podcast um for like another week (laughs) for like another week then we're probably just gonna get rid of it um not like we use it all that much anyway no um but Anyways, we also have a website, MotherNatureWillKillYouPodcast.com. You can listen to us there, or you could just listen to us on any streaming platform like Google Podcasts, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, what have Mm -hmm. you. So, yeah. And if you want to submit your own personal survival story, if you went cave diving inside an iceberg in Antarctica, we want to hear about it. <laughs> but, or if you went to Big Bend and you had a little accident, a little whoopsie doopsies. Yeah. You accidentally went off trail and then felt weird vibes. Um, we want to know about it. Um, or did you see the Marfa lights? Did you see aliens out in the desert? We want to know about that too. Um, it can be anything. can be, you know, a time you felt uncomfy in nature, a time you got in a little bit of a dangerous situation that you weren't anticipating. It doesn't have to be anything super intense because then you'd probably just be on the podcast. But if you did have something really intense, uh, we want to know about it. Yeah. Um, in addition, if you want to support the podcast but don't have any money because we live in a capitalist hellscape, uh, you can give us a five-star review on any of the listening platforms to tell the robots to bump us up the charts so that more people will hopefully no- uh, notice us. Just tell notice me. Notice me. Uh, yeah, I think I think that's it. Cool. I think that's all the stuff I talk about. I think so. Sounds like it. Yeah. Uh, next time we're gonna do another chilly one, and the next one is like one of those kind of unbelievable survival stories so hold on to your pants because it's going to be an adventure (laughs) all right can't wait um and uh just as a another announcement um we are going to be taking a break after episode 50 just to kind of collect ourselves and write some more episodes and to get our social media act together a little mm-hmm. bit um, as well as some other things. So um, we will be resuming episodes in February, but we will be taking a little baby break from the podcast for about a, a month. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, 
Um, so I guess with that, that's everything, huh? Sounds like it. Yeah. Okay. All right. Alrighty. Well, until next time, my friends, stay safe, but most of all, stay curious, explorers. It's time to go to bed now. <laughs> <laughs> bye. <laughs>